listeners, we've got a jam-packed episode for you this week. But before we get into that, I want to let you know about two special events coming up. On Friday, June 7th, we'll be hosting an album release party for Boulevards at our downtown Raleigh office as part of our regular First Friday festivities. Stop by, enjoy some beer from Trophy Brewing, and listen to some great music. Then, on Saturday, June 15th, we are throwing a special party to celebrate our Best of the Triangle winners at Highwire Brewing at Golden Belt in Durham. Beer, music, fun, you know the drill. For more details, check out IndieWeek.com. Anyway, this week we'll be talking to Raleigh City Council candidate David Knight about why he's taking on Steph Mandel in the District E race and why he had to quit his job to do it. Later, staff writer Sarah Willett sits down with Durham Planning Director Pat Young to talk about options to diversify Durham's housing choices. This interview happened a few weeks ago, and since then, the council convened a committee to come up with recommendations. And this is going to be going back before the council June 11th. Finally, we say goodbye to Sarah, who has sadly left the Indy to work for the city of Durham as a communications specialist. So sit back and listen up. This is staff writer Lee Taus, and you're listening to IndieCast. Okay, I'm here with um, Pat Young, the Durham Planning Department Director. We're going to talk about expanding housing choices, which is a slate of uh, zoning proposals intended to diversify Durham's housing stock, take some pressure off of the market here. Um, These proposed changes would apply to the urban tier um, and the suburban, some parts of the suburban tier, sort of a blob in the middle of Durham. (laughs) Um, And it's been about a year-long process. Um, One version of expanding housing choices was initially um, released in November. That's been tweaked um, and then sent to the Planning Commission in March. And the latest news on this is that the Planning Commission delayed its vote on that latest version until its May 14 meeting. So welcome, Pat. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for this opportunity to talk about this project. Thanks for coming. So um, what are some of the things that have prompted planning staff to look at expanding housing choices? What are the historic and current conditions that you're responding to? Right. So when uh, the current city council has made it clear that their top priority is um, preserving and creating housing affordability, and that's certainly something that we've seen um, as a, for quite a while as an emerging and now a very present issue. Um, the key fact that led to this initiative is that Durham is growing. It's growing pretty quickly. We've, we've had about 40,000 new residents since just since 2010. We're anticipating about 160,000 more over the next 30 years through 2050. And more than just that growth is the fact that the demand for, that's the demand for housing that's associated with this growth is outplacing the supply of housing that's available. And the number, the number of new jobs created, the number of new residents, the number of new households formed is dramatically higher than the number of housing units created. And um, a lot of that demand, as you suggested in your, in your intro, is concentrated in what we call our urban tier neighborhoods, which are neighborhoods that are approximately uh, two miles in every direction from the heart of downtown. Um, those areas have seen um, significantly higher um, valuation increases in other parts of the community, and that was borne out by the 2019 revaluation that uh, the, the Durham uh, County Tax Administrator conducted. As if that's not uh, a bad enough set of facts or a more challenging set of facts, there are a lot of great things about the growth that we're having. Um, 
a lot of the new residents, on average, the new residents have bring over $10,000 a year in additional income than the average Durhamite. That's based on some research done by Dr. Jim Johnson at UNC Chapel Hill. So they have uh, greater buying, buying power, and they're really bidding up the cost of those existing prices. And, and our theory is that if price points don't exist, excuse me, if housing doesn't exist at all price points across the spectrum, the uh, folks will kind of buy down the ladder, meaning they'll um, go and look in a neighborhood that maybe has been historically stable, historically community of color, low moderate income, uh, or middle income, and uh, bid up the cost of, price, of, of housing to, in order to be near uh, jobs, amenities, uh, and all the great things that make Durham great. So this initiative, Expanding Housing Choices, we should say, is not intended to directly create affordable housing, but as you said, it's intended to kind of provide more options and take some pressure off of the existing affordable housing. Is that right? That's exactly right, Sarah. Um, that's something we've tried to really emphasize with this initiative is that it will not solve our affordable housing problem. It will not directly create affordable housing what it will do is allow the market to create a greater diversity of housing types in the locations where their demand is for those housing types. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I, I mean. Um, the vast majority, um, probably about 80, 75, 80 percent of our urban tier neighborhoods prohibit uh, duplexes, which is just two units um, attached uh, on the same lot. In many cities that are growing, you see a lot of duplexes. Um, a lot of our, our zoning in the urban tier is single-family only. That only allows a single-family unit. Um, accessory dwelling units, which are kind of backyard cottages, are allowed now, uh, but those would be under this initiative. Um, the size of those could be slightly increased to 800 square feet, and the location on, on lots could be um, expanded. So we're trying to encourage and incentivize those along with duplexes and um, allowing smaller lots uh, so that smaller homes can be built. Uh, so those are, those are some ways where we would allow the marketplace uh, to create additional housing, taking some of the pressure, that growth pressure, that price pressure I talked about earlier uh, off of the existing market. We do believe that a lot of our affordable housing builders like Habitat for Humanity and CASA uh, will take advantage of these provisions, but most of the new creation, um, units created will be market units, and that the theory and the hope is that um, that will absorb some of that demand and reduce the pressure on prices and on stable neighborhoods like in East Durham, Walltown, Southwest Central Durham, and other communities that have been so impacted by neighborhood change. Hmm. So a lot of these proposals kind of try to get away from single-family housing. As you mentioned, that's kind of the dominant form. I think it's something like 58% of Durham's housing stock, um, especially single housing on very large lots. I know that history is part of what you all have looked at in creating this. So what has been the, I guess, the social impact of the dominance of single-family housing in Durham? Sure, that's a great point and a great question, Sarah. The um, establishment of single-family only zoning is relatively recent. It's since World War II uh, in the late 50s and the 60s and early 70s. Uh, many of our in-town neighborhoods here in Durham uh, as you walk around, you see a diversity of housing types. You see garden apartments, you see duplexes, you see triplexes, you see quads, meaning four units on, in one. Um, that's part of what makes the neighborhood so great and so vibrant. Most of those, the vast majority of those are illegal to build today. 
and so, as you alluded to in your question, the uh, establishment of these single-family-only zones was really, in, in our judgment, a part of a um, series of um, governmental and financial institution efforts to uh, keep the community segregated. And it really was a, is a legacy of, um, of, of racism to try to make it, um, development in certain neighborhoods inaccessible to low-moderate-income people, many of which are you know, from communities of color. And so it is an in explicit and intentional part of this initiative to um, essentially prohibit uh, single-family-only zoning, allow a greater diversity of housing types, and therefore a, a greater diversity of people to be able to live in our great in-town in neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So we've touched on kind of like the broader sort of swoops of this initiative, but I know that our readers are going to, going to want to know specifically what's happening with ADUs. So tell us what um, ADUs are and what expanding housing choices would, would say about those. Sure, great, great question. So we, uh, we think ADUs are a really important part of this proposal. ADUs are um, small units that would be built uh, to the rear or the side of existing uh, primarily single-family units. Uh, they have been allowed uh, in Durham without any special approvals. You have to get a building permit since 2006. We only had about 80 to, to 90 of those created during that time. Um, part of the reason for that is that they're difficult to finance, and I'll return to that in a minute. But part of the reason for that is because we limit the size of the ADU to 30% of the size of the primary unit. So if you have, a, let's say, a 1,400-square-foot house, which is very, or even, a, let's say, a 1,200-square-foot house, which is very typical in a lot of our in, uh, historic in-town neighborhoods, that limits the size of your ADU to you know, under um, 400 square feet, 30 30%. So I think that's 380 plus or minus uh, square feet. It's very difficult to get something that small built and to have it have a, you know, a bathroom and, and also just the cost of building it for what you can rent it for makes it impractical or infeasible to do. So what we're doing with this initiative is allowing any uh, qualifying house, which is any single family house uh, in the urban tier, to have an ADU up to 800 square feet. Uh, we, we think that that size is something that um, creates, it makes it ADUs more accessible to a wider variety of uh, family types. Uh, you could have a single person, you could have a couple, you have a couple with uh, one or two small children. Uh, and we also think that um, that that will uh, create an incentive for folks to, uh, for these to be attractive to folks to, to build. Um, we are also working with our community development department partners and other community partners to try to find creative ways to help homeowners finance these. You, they cannot be financed uh, conventionally. You can't go out and get a mortgage you have to borrow against your existing equity, and that's a real impediment to ADUs being produced. So we are going to be partnering with our community development department partners to find ways to get a grant and loan funds to get those built. Okay. Does um, expanding housing choices, does it change where ADUs can be built in the city? It doesn't change where they can be built. As I briefly mentioned earlier, they can, they can already be built since 2006 under, on any single-family lot, as long as there's a primary dwelling unit that goes with it. I think what, another um, advantage of accessory dwelling units is it doesn't change the quality, feel, character of the neighborhood. If you're walking down the street, you're very likely to not even know it's there, honestly, because it does have to be to the rear of the primary structure. But um, um, we... We, and we, they're already allowed, but we, we really hope that the changes that we're um, proposing will um, allow more 
encourage or incentivize more of those units to be created. Yeah. And you mentioned um, duplexes earlier. Um, if I've got my numbers correctly from the last time we talked about this issue, currently duplexes can be built um, in about 10% of the area that's covered by this, um, and that would go up to about 21%. So um, tell me about where triplexes and quads fall into this. I know that's not part of the proposal. Can you walk me through the thinking on that? Mm-hmm. Sure. So the, um, the duplexes, the, the percentages you alluded to, I think, were, are community-wide. Okay. Um, it, under this, our proposal, duplexes will, would be allowed everywhere that's residentially zoned within the urban tier, um, which is a pretty significant expansion. Um, duplexes under, kind of under state law, under our building code, they really mimic in every uh, aspect a single-family house. It's just that there's uh, 100% more opportunities for people to live in them. And so we really want to encourage those as a kind of low-impact way to um, add gentle or incremental density without dramatically changing the character of, of our communities. Triplexes and quads also meet that goal and I think have a lot of benefits. Some of our peer communities, um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, most recently and kind of uh, notably has uh, recommended that change. We decided not to look at uh, including triplexes and quads with, with this initiative um, for the reason that there are other development standards that are um, more complex and that involve a, a larger community conversation about how to deal with, such as stormwater standards. Most of the urban tier was developed prior to the early 1990s when we had stormwater treatment requirements. Um, there are kind of uh, utility and fire access solid waste vehicle standards that um, are impacted when you start to have triplexes and quads. There are also building code requirements that are dif- different. And so we absolutely want to look at introducing those into these neighborhoods in the future, but we want to make sure we have more engagement with some of our partner departments and with the, most importantly with the community to make sure they uh, understand and accept that, that approach. So I mentioned, kind of relatedly, I mentioned at the top of this conversation that the proposal was changed um, between November and what was submitted to the Planning Commission in March. Um, And the original proposal sort of allowed for more um, density than what we have before us now through things like allowing ADUs to be built with duplexes. Um, Tell us about the decision to kind of scale back the allowable density. Sure. So, um, as you alluded to, we did have an initial, um, we called it a discussion draft, a set of um, ideas for community discussion that we released in November that did, uh, just as you said in your question, allow for a greater amount of density and change than what we ended up proposing. Um, something I want to start with here is that we, we are really trying to strike what is a difficult and delicate balance with this proposal of adding additional housing units through incremental growth and additional allowable housing types and density. Uh, We want to make sure that the market will use these regulations and that they're viable, Um, but we don't want these new units to uh, disturb or destroy neighborhood character, and we don't want to accelerate neighborhood change. We talked at the beginning about the growth we're experiencing here in Durham. We don't want these provisions to be something that encourage or incentivize a significant increase in teardowns. Um, in especially neighborhoods that are still kind of naturally market affordable and um, somewhat stable. Finding that balancing point is, is difficult. And so as, as we looked at 
particularly the issue of not wanting to accelerate neighborhood change. We also did look at concerns about stormwater uh, runoff impacts of that associated flooding and parking. Um, our initial November proposal uh, in most parts, there, of course this varies based on your um, size of your lot and the specific zoning district, but in most lots you could go from one single family house today to two duplexes with an ADU, so six units. Under our March proposal, the average is going from one to three. And so I, I think something I want to emphasize here is reasonable people can absolutely disagree about the scope and scale, uh, how you balance those different concerns that I outlined. Um, and that's what I think our discussion with the Planning Commission and with the community and with I think with City Council and Board of Commissioners ultimately is going to reflect is um, people of goodwill and uh, can come down on lots of different points about the exact scope and scale of this and, and we, we absolutely want to respect that. But our, our recommendation kind of took more a conservative approach um, of modest change in the neighborhoods and then careful analysis and evaluation. If these provisions are, are not used, if the provisions are not strong enough, we would be prepared to come back in a year and recommend additional changes. So that, that was where we landed as staff. Okay. And sticking with teardowns for a minute, one of the concerns that was raised at the Planning Commission meeting was would this um, accelerate gentrification by incentivizing developers to tear down an existing home and replace it with something that is newer and, and therefore likely more expensive? How did that potential factor into the planning staff's thinking in crafting this, and what does this um, proposal do to try to mitigate that, if it's if that's possible? Sure, that's a that's a great question, and it's one of the most important questions there is about this whole initiative, and it's something we've spent a lot of time thinking about and analyzing in the planning department. We, um, a lot of this pertains to economics, right? Um, there, as everybody in the Durham community knows, we're already we're already having a very large increase in teardowns. There's really nothing we can do, given the demand to live in Durham that we face, to prevent or eliminate teardowns under state law. So teardowns are going to continue to happen. I think what we need to, to look at and think about is when those teardowns occur, do we want to see that replaced with a single family unit or with the possibility of two or three or four units so that in 15 or 20 years, we've got a larger, num a larger supply of housing stock and therefore a greater diversity of available housing that's essentially tomorrow's affordable housing, for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at a lot of the affordable housing today, it was um, traditional market housing from 25, 30, 35 years ago. So we do have to think uh, long term here and understand that there's nothing we can realistically do to uh, really prevent teardowns. We need uh, teardowns are going to occur, and we want to make sure that what comes next is something that's going to accommodate a greater diversity of citizens in terms of income, demographics, and household types. That's the big picture. The details it are that, um, as I tried to allude to my earlier comment, we don't want these provisions to make it so attractive to tear something down and build, say, five or six units that um, it, that it creates a conditions where um, mark neighborhoods that are not ready to have that change are essentially pushed into that change because of these provisions. Um, the economics of that change kind of street to street, candidly, and they're very difficult to predict and project because it's based on overall market conditions. So that's part of the reason we went with a more uh, conservative recommendation in, in terms of the scope of the change. We, we feel confident that the modest changes that we're proposing in our recommendation are not going to accelerate that. They're just going to accommodate and reflect the change that's already happening and allow um, 
a greater diversity of housing types to, to go right now where there's only single family houses. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, the Planning Commission in March um, voted or decided to kind of delay their vote until this March 14 meeting. They wanted to get a better understanding of the proposals and, and also a better understanding of how the community felt about them. So what's uh, planning staff done in the, in the time since that Planning Commission meeting? Sure. So one of the things we heard loud and clear um, at the Planning Commission in March uh, was that we had uh, missed the mark in terms of outreach and engagement, um, particularly with low moderate income communities of color and uh, historically kind of disenfranchised and un under engaged communities. Um, we had tried our best. Uh, we put this, uh, since it, it does reflect a council priority, we wanted to do this as quickly as we could. A lot of the neighborhoods um, that have existing neighborhood organizations reached out to us and we talked to them. We did make efforts, certainly, to reach out to communities in East and Southeast and South Durham, um, but we didn't necessarily have the level of um, engagement that we wanted. So we spent a lot of time since March. We've had about half a dozen meetings um, with um, community representative community groups, neighborhood groups, um, primarily in East, Northeast, and uh, Southeast Durham. And we feel really good about the fact of having a dialogue um, explaining these ch proposed changes, but more importantly, listening to the community members. Um, and then we also had a uh, kind of community conversation style meeting where we gave an overview of these proposed changes and then broke folks into small tables with facilitators to talk through their concerns, to ask questions, and then each table kind of reported out on areas where they found um, consensus and areas where they still had concerns. And we had that at Walltown um, on... Um, couple of weeks ago um, uh, at the end of, I don't want to get the date wrong, let's see, April 25th, excuse me, April 27th on Saturday, and we had about uh, 65 residents turn out, very diverse group. So we feel good about the additional efforts that we've made um, to communicate these changes, to hear community concerns, and, and that's going to go on through the approval process. Will the Planning Commission on May 14 consider the same proposals that were presented before, have they been tweaked as a result of that? So um, our intent is to bring back the same proposal we brought in March in terms of recommendations, but we are absolutely going to include information that reflects the uh, new comments we heard from the community and the diversity of ideas and concerns. Mm -hmm. There's going to be information that clearly fully characterizes that. Every comment that's come to us um, is going to be reflected so that all the, all the residents concerns will be pushed through. With all the engagement we did, we did not hear um, anything that made us think that at this point we wanted to change our staff recommendation. Our staff recommendation is just that. Our planning commission has a role in making their recommendation. They're the folks, um, residents and neighbors that our elected officials um, uh, appointed so that they could uh, have their own independent opinions on this and we'll certainly respect that and then that will go to the elected officials who can also um, pick and choose from the range of options that we are including in our report. Our report is absolutely going to have a staff recommendation, but it's also going to have alternative recommendations, um, or excuse me, alternative options that include the November um, changes and then um, other potential changes that could either increase or decrease the scope of this. Okay, and all of that information can be found on the planning department's uh, website. It, ca it can. So we're, we're still finalizing as we speak here the um, 
the final staff report um, will go out either today or tomorrow. It's on May 8th, so I don't know when you're going to plan on publishing this. But um, our www.durhamnc.gov, and then click over to the planning page, and there'll be a button that talks about expanding housing choices. And you can get the most recent staff report, and we, we've issued a supplemental memorandum that talks about our engagement efforts and the community feedback we received since March. Do you expect another long night at the Planning Commission? We do, and we think yeah. that's that's warranted. This is a big change. This is something that is really, um, the Durham community has a lot to be proud of, but our our willingness to confront this challenging topic is, is another one, and it's, um, it's a critical conversation. A lot of our peer cities in the region, like Raleigh and Chapel Hill, have really uh, not engaged the need to increase housing supply and increase the diversity of housing types. And because they haven't done that, what you see, I'm not trying to criticize them, it's policy choice, but it's uh, what you see is dramatically increased housing prices. And we don't want to see that in Durham. Mm -hmm. Durham needs to be for everybody. That's what makes us Durham. And the only way we're going to do that is if we allow um, a greater number and a greater diversity of housing types in Durham. David Knight, the director of North Carolina's Outdoor Recreation Industry Office, is the latest candidate to announce a run for city council. He'll be opposing Steph Mendel in District E. Uh, so, David, thank you so much for, for coming on board today. That's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so, um, you know, tell me, I guess, you know, what, what made you want to run for city council? Well... City Council is so important because you get a chance to touch people on the small scale and the big scale and everything from fixing potholes to making sure Raleigh has clean, sustainable water supply for future generations. And that's what it's all about. And for a long time, I have believed that Raleigh was on the right track with forward-looking leadership like Mayor Meeker and Mayor McFarland. Now it seems we have lost that strong leadership and the city is not moving forward. As Mayor McFarland said, it is time for a reset and I think I can help reset the city in a better direction. I mean, are there any specific issues that you found like frustrating with your component, with your opponent? Well, most of the issues that, that the city council deals with is around growth, mm -hmm. right? And so um, I, we have seen this uh, trend lately where it seems that a small vocal uh, minority um, is, is out, is really crowding out the voices of, of most of us in Raleigh. And I think that's unfortunate. And I think that is happening, and, and the city council is allowing that to happen. And that's not good. And so I think we need strong leadership that's not going to be basing uh, uh, their decision of issues on their ideology or their philosophy, but really on what the people want. And what I'm going to be doing is putting people first. And I think if you listen to the people and take in all the opinions, um, you will then have a better opportunity to get to a good solution. I'm going to be working with everybody, Democrats, Republicans, unaffiliated, anybody that's a stakeholder that wants to come to the table. I think that's the best way to go about it. My whole career has been around uh, public policymaking, and I've learned uh, you know, two main things. You've got to have a transparent, inclusive process uh, to succeed on tough policy issues. And the other is, number two is, I actually believe in experts. I believe in scientists, doctors, uh, 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 professionals uh, that do this for a living. And so based on education and experience, those folks need to be part of the process and, and at the table. And we need to listen to them. 
and not basing decisions on just this, uh, uh, our opinion that's ingrained that we come in with. It's not up to us. It's really up to what the, the people want. I mean, and, you, and we've seen that kind of, you know, disregarding, you know, staff opinion, expert staff opinion by several people on the council. Um, you know, not your opponent, but most recently with David Cox and this Brentwood sewer um, issue, you know, saying, kind of disputing with staff where a wetland is when, you know, it's like, shouldn't we be trusting, um, you know, the people we've hired to do that job to make that? determination. Um, and I think, too, with the vocal minority thing, we've seen that in a bunch of issues play out on council from Airbnb to, um, you know, the accessory dwelling units, uh, and even like the bird scooters um, and issues like that. Uh, you know, it's a criticism I've heard a lot right. of this council. Yeah, um, I, and I'll tell you, I, you know, so, you know, I believe in safe and healthy neighborhoods. I believe in supporting small business. I believe in mixed-use development. I believe in sidewalks and connectivity. I believe in keeping housing affordable, and I believe in inclusion and equity, and I, and I believe in modern technology to help propel this city forward. And most of all, I believe in getting to yes, figuring out how to get to that solution, and I believe most of the residents of Raleigh support that and believe the same thing. I mean, I think one of the things is this council thinks that they are getting, I mean, they, they are getting to yes, they are getting what they want, because as Russ Stephen keeps saying, five votes, that's what matters here. Um, but do you think that the solutions that they've been finding to things like, you know, short-term rentals and, you know, just some of the solutions, some of the votes that they've taken late recently, I mean, do you think that those are the right decisions for Raleigh? Well, what I'm hearing out there is that people is that people think that the city council is not moving forward, actually. They're not making full decisions and then getting all the information, all the input, listening to the experts, and then making a full final decision and moving on. It sounds like a lot of issues are being moved to committees mm -hmm. um, that's slowing the issues down or stalling them. Um, certainly around development issues, you know, uh, time is money. And I get that and I understand that. And so I think we need to be, the city certainly, city leaders need to be deliberate and intentional. That's what it's all about. But be well informed and, and then you've got to move on these, on these issues. You're never gonna make everybody happy. But you really got to listen to the people and the majority of the people. And usually they're going to get it right and follow what they want and listen to them, transparent, inclusive, and I think you'll get to a, a good solution. I mean, and just in terms of the amount of time some of these issues have taken to deal with, I think it's six years for accessory dwelling units right. to get a vote on that, five years for Airbnb, and we're only really halfway there because they haven't voted on whole house rentals yet, although they will be enforcing it right. and finding people who are renting out their house now on Airbnb. Yeah. Get ready. And here's the thing. You know, these aren't just local issues we're dealing with. Cities are dealing with them all over the country, right? And so, uh, you know, we have a very... Uh, a population now that can move quickly that's very mobile nationally and internationally you get a perception out there and we want our perception to be that we are welcoming that we are forward-thinking and that we are a progressive city and I think that's an important uh, 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 not only a perception but to actually follow that and to do it and I think that is very important every day in every other city those leaders are waking up and saying how can we be more competitive with other cities. I mean, we're in competition with other cities and other states, and I think that's something we gotta, we gotta, uh, we gotta keep in mind. And so, a thriving city is good for everybody. It's good for the people. It's good for the environment, uh, as opposed to one that's not moving forward. That's uh, that's that's not making the tough decisions that you got to make to move forward and make these decisions 
um, and then support those decisions and, and move forward with it. So, I mean, you know, in a run for office, uh, you know, everybody, you know, has to make some sacrifices to do that. But it seems like, you know, you, you, you're having a little bit more of a complicated issue. A lot of the candidates um, running for council announced months ago. And, um, you know, I think I heard your name in, 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 in the running there. And I think we talked briefly in March maybe about that. And then people are kind of like, well, where, where, where is he? You know, where, where is his announcement? <laughs> yes. So, um, you know, you had told me that there was some conflict with your job. What's, what's going on with that? Well, there's no conflict other than that, unfortunately, I had to choose between keeping my job and running for city council. And I did choose, and I chose to run for city council because I think it is, it is too important of a time in Raleigh's history to not step up and get more involved. Um, it is the right time in my life, uh, it is my, in my role as a citizen of the city to make this commitment. Um, I see a great need for better city leadership, and I think my experience and my background makes me the right kind of person to step into this role now. So why why did the state want you to step down? Well, you, you'll have to ask the people who made that decision <laughs> that. Um, but, um, you know, I'm trying to move on from that and focus on mm -hmm. uh, this city council race. Um, but again, because it's going to take my full attention. Um, now, um, it is unfortunate and, uh, it's just, I, it's I, weird. I mean, it, yeah. it's not something I've heard of before. Right. Well, I, I, you know, I loved what I did and I believed in what we're trying to do, um, around outdoor recreation and the outdoor recreation industry. So I, I'm, I'm passionate about that. Um, and, uh, and I hope to keep working on that in a, in a, you know, in some other way. Um, but, um, uh, it is unfortunate and, um, uh, I, think I could have done both. Yeah. Um, there are different solutions you could come up with, but, um, uh, you know, they weren't willing to, to uh, work on some solutions that may have worked for everybody in this. And so um, I had to choose. And uh, so I've chosen to run for city council. That must have been a really, really tough choice. It has been very difficult. And as you <laughs> alluded to, I delayed my announcement um, for over a month. Um, I'm hoping it hasn't put me behind, um, but um, uh, uh, I have done that, trying to, trying to work out if there was a way I could either take a leave of absence or continue working in that position, but it's not worked out that way. So I, uh, um, you, know, you know, as a challenger, I've got to get moving out there and, and get, uh, get my name out and let folks know what I stand for, and so um, I'm having to... Uh, I can't wait any longer. So I'm ready to go, and I'm, I'm turning my attention uh, to this uh, race, and I'm excited about it. Uh, I think I've uh, been talking to a lot of people uh, out there, both you know the so-called influencers and decision-makers and city leaders, and um, I think there is a lot of support out there for Raleigh um, uh, getting uh, some new leadership. Uh, I'm excited about the, the really the slate of candidates out there. Um, I think it's going to create... A, it's going to require this conversation to happen before the election, and I think that's a very important one. Um, and we got to keep in mind, uh, you know, we're going to have a new mayor uh, for the first time in a long time. Mayor McFarland did a great job, and we're going to miss her, and I'm a big supporter and fan of hers. Um, uh, but we're going to have a, 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 new, a new mayor, and I think that's a big deal. Um, and we could and hopefully will have some new uh, counselors. On there and uh, it's gonna be a big change and I, people need to be paying attention to it and I, what I remind people is my vote as, as a city councilor if I'm if I'm fortunate enough to get on it is just as important as the mayor's vote or the at-large it's the same district. vote it's the same <laughs> vote and so everybody in the city needs to be keeping uh, paying attention to these districts mine in particular I believe um, and because my vote could be the decisive vote 
and uh, on an issue that affects the whole city or, or that affects downtown. Um, and we know we have some big growth issues uh, to deal with and grapple with. Um, and um, I think that is something that all uh, folks that care about Raleigh need to be thinking about are the district races as, as well as the mayoral race. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, even if even if every council seat stays the same and we just have a different mayor, that could potentially shift the balance of power on the board, lead to a lot of stalemated decisions. Um, but then two two cha two seats changing over, you know, that could entirely shift the balance um, and yes. lead to a very different looking board. So I mean, I think this, you know, the district races here are going to be hugely important. Right, yeah. um, so let's get into your uh, your opponent a little bit. You know, we've written a couple stories about Steph. Um, you know, I don't think anybody questions that Steph is hugely dedicated to her job, passionate, uh, listens to her constituents, um, and, you know, truly thinks that she's doing the right thing for the city. Um, you know, that being said, she's also done things that, you know, have sparked some criticism, such as opposing uh, a rooftop bar in, um, you know, a growing downtown district owned by one of the city's top restaurateurs, uh, Scott Crawford. Um, you know, and she's also tried to shut down a sidewalk project and backpedaled on that ultimately after, uh, you know, <laughs> lots of, a lot more public debate. Uh, you know, delaying that project even further, a sidewalk next to a school in a heavily pedestrian trafficked area. I mean, like, you know, watching those issues play out from the sidelines, what, what, what did that make you think of? Well, both of those um, issues got my attention, and um, uh, really, especially the sidewalk issue, uh, it, it, it's, it's really in my old neighborhood. Uh, it's, oh, you used to live down there? Yeah. Oxford yeah, I Road. Used to, I used to live. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. No, no, I just, uh, I mean, I walked yeah, around yeah, yeah. there for a lot. Yeah, I used to live on Bickett Boulevard, mm. uh, which, is, which comes down through Five Points as well. So um, I know that neighborhood well and um, care about it a lot. And, uh, and so that got my attention, uh, really did. And so I started looking into this and people started talking to me um, about uh, the way that came down, um, you know, a five-year process, a what a half a million dollar uh, project um, for it at the end of that process when, you know, obviously the city doesn't go about these things without surveying the neighborhoods, without finding out that, you know, most of the people uh, support it and want it. And uh, for that to be um, uh, treated like that, I think, uh, really speaks to uh, the, the, the style of uh, decision-making. And I don't think that's good. Uh, I don't think it's good for the city. And so that, that uh, you know, sidewalks, whatever else, is the basis of smart growth. That's all about connectivity and uh, for all the uses of, of sidewalks. And so, um, and I know right where it is, and, you know, it's, it's really needed there, that, that sidewalk project. So hopefully they can get that uh, back on track. The other issue is, you know, is, is a, you know, I think an example of overstepping your bounds. Um, again, um, you know, it was an issue not uh, in her district. Um, but she owns a property there. So she was there as a private, pr private citizen and property owner. That's what I understand. And, um, you know, you look at... You look at what's going on in the city. You know, Ashley Christensen just won the Beard, you know, James Beard Award. And Ashley, uh, that is unbelievable, awesome for her, but also for the city because mm -hmm. of all the work that that led to her winning that. Um, and those are the type of people and the type of small businesses we need to be cherishing and and and, and propelling up and 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 really helping out and supporting. And so, to me, small businesses are the key to my district, but also to the city as a whole. And so, the the, the occasion with uh, the restaurant down in uh, down on Person Street, I, I think it was unfortunate. And again, I think it's um, 
we as individual counselors aren't the experts. We need to let the process work. And in that case, um, from what I understand, um, she didn't let the process work. And, you know, we, <laughs> I mean, what uh, Mr. Crawford is trying to do with that restaurant, I think is incredibly great. Mm -hmm. It's great. And it is an issue that we're going to continue to have to deal with as we try to uh, deal with growth, with mixed use. You've got to have it. And that is a great area um, that has mixed use there. And from anything I understand, the neighbors really, most of them, support what's going on in that neighborhood. And, and what, what Scott Crawford is doing there is a key component of the development uh, and redevelopment of that neighborhood. So, you know, he should be supported. I think it also goes to this concern that you brought up earlier about uh, the professional staff. Um, uh, there, you know, I understood that, you know, they, there's some talk about they've become less flexible and less willing to work with, uh, uh, small businesses, um, uh, and because of what they're being told by counselors. If that's true or not, I don't know, but that's what, that's the rumor out there. That's sort of the perception on the street and perception becomes reality. I mean, right? I've, I've talked it's to so several people in city hall who say, you know, this council is not the easiest to work with. Yeah. You know, that they give, that they kind of have a t tendency to micromanage certain yeah. projects where, you right. know, usually staff would kind of have the yeah. freedom to work. Right. And, you know, again, where we ought to be supporting and really even incentivizing small businesses to go exactly where Scott Crawford is trying to go with that, with that new restaurant. Um, and so, you know, again, this goes back to the larger issue of, 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 of sustainable, smart growth for the city. We can't keep pushing out. Uh, that causes transportation problems, uh, connectivity problems. It causes housing affordability problems. Um, and so we've got to um, use mixed use where it's appropriate. We got to use. We got to get more dense where it's appropriate. Um, and I think th those are the type of big issues that are uh, not moving forward, or or they're or they're actually going backwards. And I think that's one thing that'll be a a uh, very obvious difference in the in the way that I look at issues for my opponent. Yeah. So just to just just to wrap things up, I mean, you know, why do you think that the citizens of District D? Uh, that the citizens of District E uh, should um, should vote for you, David. Well, um, I have lived in the neighborhoods of District E uh, for for many years, all, really all of my adult uh, life, and um, I know that uh, district well, and I know I believe the people of that district well, and I've heard from a lot of them uh, the last really year and few months in particular and um, uh, I think my experience and my background uh, will lends itself to me being the right type of person um, with my policy making background uh, with my uh, process uh, uh, background you know I've been fortunate enough to, to lead and be part of collaborative efforts all my career public policy making efforts uh, and process all my career and I think that lends itself to this time and now in, in, in where we are in Raleigh and so I'm looking forward to working with everybody um, all the people in my district and the city uh, to to continue to move the city forward in a, in a, in a progressive forward-thinking way I want the city to be world-class and that's you get there by making transparent inclusive decisions and really looking towards uh, making the city the most livable 
that you can, and that's that just raises the quality of life for everybody. And that's what everybody's looking for is to have a great, high as high as possible quality of life, right? And that's by having a fulfilling job, a commute that's bearable, uh, a safe and healthy neighborhood to live in, um, uh, a sustainable uh, uh, and healthy environment. Um, and so those are the things that people want, and those are the things that I'm going to try to bring uh, to the city and bring to the, to the citizens of District E. So today is a sad day at Indy Week because it is Durham staff writer Sarah Willett's last day here. Uh, Sarah has, you know, just been such a crucial source of information for the Durham community. Uh, you know, you're one of the most hugely respected reporters uh, that I've really ever met in my career, and we're just we're just so sad to see you leave us. Thank you. Um, I'm sad too. But you're not going far because no. you're going to. Well, maybe you should say. I'll be staying in Durham, um, just making a quick hop over to the district attorney's office to do some communications work. Yeah, so using your amazing uh, writing skills in just a new way, but in still a public service-oriented yeah. capacity. Um, so yeah, we wanted to kind of take this time on the podcast to kind of unpack, you know, your last two years here at Indy, uh, and um, yeah, so I guess uh, maybe we'll take it back to the beginning. Um, you, you I remember you mentioned you've been reading indie since you were a teenager. Yeah, I grew up in Chapel Hill, uh, went to Carborough High School, go Jaguars. I mean, at that <laughs> time, like, did you know that you wanted to be a writer? I knew that writing came naturally to me, and mm-hmm. I knew I was starting to pick up on that at that point that people talked to me. And so what the indie helped click in my mind, was that I could have that as a job. (laughs) That that was a job that you could have and get paid to do, and it looked like the people at this publication were having a really fun time doing it. So you went to school in New York, right? That's where I went to college, yeah. Yeah, and uh, NYU? Yes. Yeah, and you studied... The Bobcats. Uh, And uh, did did you study journalism there? I did, yeah, and at NYU, journalism majors are required to double major, so I went there, um, this is embarrassing, I went there <laughs> intending for my second major to be Spanish and like basically got to the point where I just like couldn't hang in the Spanish classes anymore. <laughs> it was like hard. It was like 17th century Spanish literature in Spanish and I was like, man. Um, so oh, man, I, <laughs> yeah, that 17th century Spanish literature gets you every time. Yeah, it was rough. Um, <laughs> so I switched my second major to a hybrid of Spanish and linguistics. Mm-hmm. And um, so what brought you back to North Carolina? Um, well, I missed North Carolina. How can you not, right? Yeah, it's great. And <laughs> I was also just kind of like struggling in the job market there, as so many people have experienced. Um, New York, an oversaturated market with overqualified people. Right. And it's <laughs> like you're like 22 and like no one actually wants to pay you. They just want you to do their like social media and I was just feeling like a really like tiny speck in a really big world, and I wanted to get back to kind of community journalism and really having a hand in the product that we put out every day and, and also having an impact on my local community. So I went to Lumberton, North Carolina, which is in the southeastern part of the state, and worked there for three years when this opportunity at the Indy opened up. Yeah, so I mean, when when uh, so I guess when you were preparing to make the jump here, I mean, did you, did you know what you were getting into? Did I know what I was getting into? 
Um, no, because I don't think I knew until my first day that I was going to be covering Durham. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I knew what I was getting into as a reader. Mm. Like I knew the tone of the work and the type of topics, but it was going to be in it ended up being an adjustment to go from like the daily journalism world to the weekly world and um, to kind of have this sort of like mission driven editorial uh, agenda. Not agenda, that sounded bad. <laughs> yeah, we have an Focus. agenda. Ooh, uh, 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 uh. No, just not like that. We have a social justice agenda. Yeah. Ooh, very, you know, <laughs> mischievous. Um, so, you know, you, so you started at the Indy two years ago. Um, I guess, like, how would you, how would you say you've grown as a writer through this experience? I was used to writing a lot of, like, straight news, so I really Mm. had to learn how to, like, flex my actual Mm. writing muscles again, and it's also made me think a lot more about the impact of our reporting and not just, you know, getting laws changed and all the kinds of things that, you know, rooting out injustice that we want to do, but just like, how does it actually affect the subjects of our stories to go through the process of being the subject of a story? You know, I was more of like a straight crime reporter Mm -hmm. back in Lumberton. And when I came here and started talking to people about mass incarceration and things like that, I realized like just how many times I had typed the words like, so-and-so was denied bond and things like that. Um, So it really opened my eyes to how we as journalists were a part of that and how we played into some of those problems and how we could avoid playing into some of those problems. So kind of becoming a little bit more conscious about the impact of the work. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I guess, like, you know, not a surprise probably to our listeners, but, you know, we... We, I think we're both, like, loved and, and hated in some respects because we do take a bolder stance on issues. Um, and that can be a hard line to toe. I mean, was that an adjustment for you? I think I got more hate in Lumberton, for sure. <laughs> yeah, actually. Nice. That was, like, a very vocal community. Yeah. Um, I think that I've managed to avoid a little bit more of the hate here because my, a lot of my focus has coverage on, like, a lot of my coverage has focused on the community and, like, regular people here mm-hmm. um, and just kind of lifting up the things that they're dealing with in their yeah. everyday lives. So taking on more, like, systemic issues than, yeah. than individual actors. So what are some of um, the stories that have really left the biggest impact on you that you've written here? I'm proud of the work that we did around ICE detainers. Mm. Um, to name just kind of one example off the bat. Um, I think that's something that, again, like regular people in this community were pushing for, for an end to the sheriff's office practice of honoring ICE detainers, something that activists had been working on for a long time. But I think that our coverage of that issue helped elevate that um, and give people the tools to have an informed conversation about that around election time. Um, So I'm proud of that. I feel like I know that issue really well and that's a good feeling as a journalist um I wrote about foster care back in like November and that really stuck with me because of the people in that story Mm -hmm. um I have never really kids are not a part of my life (laughs) as is the case with like a lot of young reporters are just like all about work right and so to 
talk to people who not who wanted to take in other people's children was just really compelling to me. So their that was stories, an incredible story. Thank you. I have to say their oh. stories stuck with me. Um, I'm trying to think of some others. Uh, there was a story I did a while back about some guys like that were, have been playing horseshoes for, like, decades on their street, <laughs> and this developer had come in and brought up, bought up a bunch of houses around their pitch and was trying to shut down their games. Oh, my God. And so that felt... That was a cool story. They were just, like, genuinely really nice people, and it felt like such a succinct kind of, like, microcosm of yeah. issues in Durham. So I'm just, like, constantly shocked that, like, people talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> Like, well, I've never gotten over that awe of just, like, oh, my God, you're, like, willing to talk to this yeah. stranger? Like, it's kind of incredible. I mean, I think part of that, at least, like, for me just getting to know you is that, you know, it's really easy once you get to know you to respect you and to see how passionate you are about your work and how serious you take it. Yeah. Um, I think that makes, you know, trust is really important um, in this line of work. And if you can't gain people's trust, you're not going to really get anywhere. Um, so I think that you, you know... You just have a way of approaching a story that's so thoughtful and sincere. And I think that your subjects, you know, they get that. Thank you. It's really a privilege what we do and the stuff that people share with us is it's so vulnerable and private yeah. sometimes. And I, I do take that really seriously. Um, so what were some of the biggest challenges? Like what were like, were there any stories that really gave you grief here? Oh, God. <laughs> You're like, don't ask me that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I always have grief because there's mm -hmm. always, like, more that I want to include. Yeah. Um, so there's that just, like, quotidian <laughs> kind of struggle. But then probably the stories, the story that I got the most pushback for was about this, like, proposed rezoning in North Durham that people will remember as, like, the public's Gosh. rezoning. Um, what is with Publix? Seriously. People love Publix. But people hate Publix, too. This was about more than Publix, for sure, <laughs> which was, yeah, the root of why people were wow. upset when Zoning. we covered it. Publix. Ooh. Yeah. So that's probably the one I've gotten the most pushback about. Mm -hmm. um, Fair. Really, can't really top that one. Um, and, um, yeah, so I guess, uh, you know, so you're going moving into a new role, um, and uh, you know obviously it's going to leave a big void in this community. But I guess any lessons that you've learned from covering Durham, um, things that you want to see happen in the city moving forward. Um, things I want to see happen. Well, I can speak from a point of like what we should be paying attention to. Mm -hmm. How about that? Um, I think it's really important to pay attention to um, the Durham Housing Authority redevelopment, um, not only because of the impact that that's going to have on downtown Durham, but the impact it's going to have on residents. Mm -hmm. They have a right to come back to their properties, and um, I hope that they know that, but there's also going to be that gap in between, you know, when they get moved out to rebuild the building and when they move in, and, and we shouldn't forget um, that they're going to be experiencing that gap. So I think that's really important to pay attention to. Um, I think it'll be interesting to watch how the city retools itself after light rail. Mm -hmm. It's still kind of this like phantom oh, yeah. limb in a lot of <laughs> conversations. It's like people are acknowledging now that it's dead. Yeah. But Is how it really? 
Oh yeah, really it's dead? full on dead. <laughs> full on dead. Really, most um, sincerely so dead. So <laughs> how the city grapples with that and what becomes the the alternative will be interesting to watch. Yeah, um, and I guess any kind of like overarching lessons that you've learned from covering this city. Durham is so great. <laughs> I mean, you're sticking around, so clearly. Yeah, I mean, like as a reporter, as you know, like especially earlier in your career, you move a lot. Like I thought that I was gonna have a lot of different jobs and go to a lot of different places and I I didn't really expect to want to hang around in one city for so long. There's just something about Durham. Yeah, <laughs> something in the water. Thanks for listening to IndieCast. Subscribe to our podcast on the Apple Podcast app and look for more episodes at IndieWeek.com.